Well, I'm giving this talk on the history of the Messianic Jewish community. People had asked, uh, some people asked me to kind of give an overview. Uh, and last week we uh, presented it beginning in the, uh, the mid uh, to late 1800s up until 1970. Uh, and uh, today uh, what I want to do is I want to just go over some of the history beginning in about 1970 to our present time. Some of this is, uh, and again, you have notes on the back of uh, the announcement sheet, so I encourage you to take those out. This is a lecture. This is not normal. Usually I just get up here and open the text and preach, give a sermon. But instead, I would like to give a lecture. And so it's a different approach. I encourage you not to glaze over the eyes and put it into neutral, but to instead engage, because there's a lot we can learn from this. Last week was before 1970. This week is 1970 to the present. Next week, what I want to talk about is where do we go from here? What's the future? If you don't learn from the past, if you don't understand the past, you're going to be in trouble when it comes to the future. It's extremely important to understand that. I was, a parent asked me some advice about a kid. I gave him advice, and he didn't listen to me. Okay? And it's kind of sad. Because the one thing I've learned is I've learned to listen to the advice of older people that have done well, and it saved me all kinds of trouble. I was working out at the Weber Center, and uh, one of the old Jewish guys is in there. He's about 85 years old, retiree, and he's giving me stock tips. Stock tips. And, uh, you know, I've known him through the years. I knew him at the J before they shut the J down. And, I've known, and, you know, through the years I've really come, this man's very wise when it comes to investments. And so I, I don't have a lot of money, but I listened to him in one or two things that he said because he had good advice. And I can only tell you that I'm not retiring on the Riviera, but uh, his advice was very, very good. And I'm glad I took his advice. Uh, we learn from others, especially people that have experienced things and from history. And we must remember this in our Messianic Jewish movement if we are to continue into the future. So we're going to begin with a little bit of a reminder of the changes, the demographic changes in the American Jewish community. Some of you remember them personally. These are changes that really were a part of your life. So point one, first thing we have to note is that after the Second World War, Mass immigration to the United States basically ended, except for the Russian immigration in the late 90s or in the, up to about the mid-90s. And again, some of you are personally involved in that too. Uh, but but the, one of the key components in American Jewish community and its development were these waves of massive immigration. Very small, beginning with the, uh, the Sephardic Jews and then the German Jews. And then, of course, all the Jews out of the eastern areas, whether it's uh, Middle Europe all the way out to Russia, uh, that was very important in establishing and, and really making the Jewish community what it is today. After the Second World War, there was some limited immigration. At one point, there were more Holocaust survivors living in Skokie per capita than any city in the world. That includes Israel. And Norm could tell you stories about growing up in Lincolnwood, uh, where there were also, that's where his family lived, and his father, of course, a survivor of Auschwitz, and the stories that people didn't tell. So one thing that's fascinating, all these people living around here, tattoos on their arms, telling nobody. Nobody. They just lived life. Something we can't even imagine. I mean, uh, but that, uh, that was that immigration that took place following the Second World War. Besides the, uh, the immigration to America and, and, and after the Second World War, this immigration of survivors, uh, the establishment of the state of Israel didn't happen here. 
<laughs> okay? It happened in Israel, but the mark on the American Jewish community was profound. The Americans also played a significant role. Okay, volunteers went over. Uh, money was raised, significant money. If you've seen the movie, again, The Chosen, you'll understand that because uh, what they're trying to capture in Reuben's uh, father's actions is, is one of the, he was really representative of one or two key leaders in America, Jewish leaders, raising money and the polarization between the real religious, the real frumies who didn't believe that a state should be established through secular means only through the Messiah and the rest of the Jewish world who said we need a state now. All right? It was significant in uh, causing tension in the United States and especially certain areas back in, uh, on the East Coast, uh, but uh, it was uh, important in, in making the Jewish community in America feel secure in itself and uh, allowing the American Jewish community to play a, a critical role, which we still play, in helping to fund uh, the land of Israel. Billions of dollars flow into Israel from America because of an American Jewish community. Significant amounts of that are American government dollars because of American Jewish lobbying. That's not a bad thing, okay? That's a good thing. American Jews taking a stand for the land of Israel, encouraging our legislatures to remember that Israel is a good ally and deserves our support. But it is American Jewish political effort that makes that happen. I say that only because as the American Jewish community experiences trouble in the future, which it will, that support will disappear. Okay? I mean, uh, Europe today is a good example of that. Post-Holocaust, the Europeans were ashamed of themselves, and they gave to Israel, the Germans especially. That's disappearing, significantly disappearing today. And it will happen here in America too, depending on the state of our Jewish community. And then, of course, the Cold War... After the, uh, uh, you know, after the immigration of Holocaust survivors from about 1945 to about 1950, 52, whatever, somewhere around there, uh, then there was a, the Cold War really hit in. And how many of you remember the Cold War? <laughs> you know, I was just a little kid. All I remember about the Cold War, yes, Stella remembers the Cold War. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was a lot of tension. Everybody figured they'd get blown up in a nuclear uh, conflagration at any moment. You know, we were taught in California, we're supposed to, uh, you know, basically hide under our desks if there's a nuclear bomb. I mean, like, that'll really help, okay? Uh, but uh, what occurred was, of course, uh, and this was interesting, is there was a trapping of Eastern Bloc Jews, all right? They're, they're from the Soviet Union all the way into um, uh, you know, the middle European countries and part of the Warsaw Pact, you had about 2 million Jewish people trapped, trapped, couldn't move. A few people, refuseniks, uh, like we think of Sharansky, not uh, 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 Sharansky, Antonio, uh, Antolia, I think is his Russian name. Sharansky was a refusenik along with a few. I should point out that Shoshana's grandmother, Anna Portnoff, uh, along as actually, it's really Shoshana's mother uh, was, uh, was kind of a troublemaker and uh, an instigator in the, in the 70s, late 70s. I don't remember all the whole story, but the bottom line is they were part of, their family really was part of, a, uh, of this group of Russian Jewish refuseniks who stood up for their Jewish identity and wanted to make immigration to Israel and it drew the attention of Americans. And that's how they got here, which is kind of interesting. 
You should have your mother share the story when she comes. But um, uh, very few Jews were able to do this. Just a few thousand. It became a political issue. Okay? And, and uh, eventually, though, because of uh, American intransigence, really, the, the, the wall came down, the Russians ran out of money, and the rest, as they say, is history. And so most of the Jews from the Eastern European countries moved. Right? They moved to, to Israel, approximately a million Approximately a million Russian Jews moved to Israel. About half a million moved to Brooklyn, <laughs> it seems. Uh, it's hard to do the numbers, but really a million moved to Israel. About a half a million moved all over the United States. That's probably more accurate. Maybe about 25, 30,000, maybe 40,000 here in the Chicago area. All right, a bunch in, in, uh, in California. Uh, and a significant portion ended up in Brighton Beach, New York. Uh, and then uh, a couple hundred thousand scattered in the other countries of, of the world. Uh, but uh, the Jewish community now uh, is centered really in the land of Israel and in America. We're at parity. So if we're talking here again about immigration issues, there is, there, at this time, besides America, there is no other significant Jewish community outside of Israel. Now people like to argue about the French. Uh, and the, the, you know, the people down in Argentina, maybe about 200,000 Jews in Argentina, 600,000 Jews in France, maybe 300,000 uh, 300, Jews in England. Maybe there's still about a half a million people who would be identifiably Jewish in one way or another still in the Eastern Bloc. But the demographics are such that there is no longer, more than likely, there's no obvious source for future immigration to America except for one country, and that country is Israel. And today, uh, Israelis, Jews, cannot easily immigrate to America. It's not possible. Just go talk to somebody illegally selling something in a mall, okay? The Israelis selling stuff in the malls are all on visas, carefully guarded, and they get in big trouble if they jump their visa because America is not interested in Jews moving from Israel to America. Very, very limited, okay? So it's big because the American Jewish community has survived on, an in, on incoming populations of Jews, there were approximately 6 million Jews in America by, you, by the time you get to the 1950s. 6 million Jews in America by the time you get to the 1950s. Today in America, after about a half a million Russian Jews moved in, there are just shy of, and it depends on who you talk to, 6 million Jews in America. What that tells us is that we have a little problem in America with growing a Jewish community. It's called a low birth rate and high rates of assimilation. We'll talk more about that actually next week. So immigration into America in terms of the Jewish world is over. The Jewish community in America is mainstream. It's mainstreamed. I mean, we've got uh, Leslie's a, a retired cop. Barry's a businessman. Bob is a masseuse. You know, I mean, what, what is America, the golden land, you know, the golden land. We can do anything we want. My grandfather came from Austria, Hungary, opened up a liquor store. His son became a psychiatrist, founded the San Francisco Psychiatric Hospital. My father was a, a systems analyst with AT&T. My uncle was a stockbroker with one of the big houses. My aunt was a CPA. We're Americans. We can do anything we want. We're mainstreamed. 
I can go anywhere. I can buy a house anywhere, except for maybe places in Idaho. <laughs> but generally speaking, it's America. We are accepted here. The result, though, is increasing religious nominalism. I'm a Jew. What does that mean? I have a membership in a synagogue. I, I eat bagels and locks. You know, my parents were Jewish. We celebrated a Seder. But there's an awful lot of religious nominalism in the American Jewish community. That's really unique. You go to Europe, and the Jewish community is much more religiously observant. doesn't matter where you go in Europe. If you're a Jew in Europe, you are religiously observant, tightly knit into the community. That's not the case in America. That's new. And it's not just new, it's new in the time frame we're talking about. This change to mainstreaming took place after about 1960, 1970. Only in the last 40, 50 years have we had this much freedom. When my grandfather went to get a psychiatric degree or whatever, medical degree, there were quotas on Jews getting medical degrees in hospitals or in, in, in colleges. He had to go from San Francisco to Ann Arbor. Why? Because they let more Jews in. Now you can go anywhere again. Things have changed. Things have changed. But it's led to a religious nominalism today, which is really a problem. There is a, an ethnic pride in America, the rise of ethnic pride. I remember uh, that my father hated that because my father, well, he was part of that generation, was like, I'm an American. Jew. <laughs> you know, you know he, the idea of being an American, being an American, and he didn't like all that ethnic stuff. You know, we're here, one country, you know, let's, you know. But in the 70s and 80s, you know, the rise of ethnic identification, uh, it, it, Jewish people today, and, and as Jews in America, we basically identify ourselves ethnically. As nominalism has occurred in terms of our religious affiliation, our identification is much more in terms of like a, a, a peoplehood tribalism kind of thing. That part of Jewish peoplehood has survived. Now, but it's also threatened because today for every two Jews, actually, take three Jews. This is the demographic reality in America. Three Jews. One marries a Jew, one marries a Gentile, one never gets married. Okay? That's, you go out and study it. It's interesting. One marries a Jew, one marries a Gentile, one never gets married. And what's interesting about it is, or they just live together, I suppose, but officially never gets married. And then if you look at it, the one who marries a Jew usually has maybe two kids. If he marries a Gentile, usually they have three. So we talk about replacement levels. It's a real problem. The rise of intermarriage... And the low birth rate has completely changed the future landscape, is changing the future landscape of the Jewish community. All right? But we're mainstreamed. That's common. That's happening to all groups. All right? They say that the, the Hispanic community is following the same patterns, which is very interesting. My cousin married an Hispanic. <laughs> all right? And she's just flat out American. All right? And they're not religious. <laughs> all right. Now, I want to talk about something that is also interesting. Last time we talked, up to 1970, the driving force, the driving force within what we call Messianic Jewish community was the missions. These are basically Christian organizations, Christians who love Jewish people and want to see them come to believe in Jesus. Okay, and, and yet they are missions. They are organizational structures, 501c3s. And most of them are, again, Christian 
Uh, a couple, big one was American Board of Missions to the Jews, was always run by a Jew, always had predominantly Jewish workers. It was the most indigenous of the group. Uh, what occurred in the 1970s, for those of you who were there, was a radical change in society. All right? Some might even call it a psychedelic experience. All I know is that there was a lot of polyester. <laughs> Bad clothes. Um, the missions, when you come to the 1970s, the missions were really not equipped for, for the change. They were old, they were stuffy, they, they hadn't done a good job of changing with the times. I think a lot of Christian organizations were like that. I don't know, I suppose a lot of Jewish organizations were like that too. Everybody was not prepared for this radical change. Um, people often ask about Jews for Jesus. I mean, today in our time, Jews for Jesus is, is the name. When people find out we're Jewish and we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they automatically think Jews for Jesus. Jews for Jesus was originally a ministry, an outreach of the American Board of Missions to the Jews. Uh, Moish Rosen, who up until about 1970 or so went by the name of Martin Rosen, because that's his English name, Moish, Moish is his Hebrew name, uh, was on staff with Chosen People Ministry or the American Board of Missions to the Jews from about 1955 to about 1972. And he was very radical uh, in his approaches, uh, especially as you got to the late 60s, somebody introduced him to this, to the, this hippie movement, or as some would call it the hippie movement, you know, uh, and all the Jewish people involved in it. All these baby boomers. How many of you are baby boomers? Go ahead, don't be ashamed. Yeah, my wife is raising her hand. She's not. Generationally, though, those of you who are baby boomers, you remember this. You know, you grew up in the 50s. How many of you had a coonskin hat? Anybody have a coonskin? Yeah, you guys are so quintessential. All right, stereotypical is beautiful. But you've got this, but you see, the, the 50s were this wonderful time in America. And then the 60s, the problem with the 60s was, I think, is that you had Vietnam. Vietnam was a major, major point of contention nationally, but then also what it did in terms of society. And, and so people rejected the, the ideas of the past, and they were open to new ideas, and at the same time, society... Uh, I mean, there were new ideas coming around because people were in Vietnam and there was a lot of activity with the East. A lot of that came West. And, uh, and I mean, there was very little drug use. There was heroin back in the 20s, 30s. It was always been around. But, I mean, the idea of, of uh, you know, a lot of drug use, uh, you know, dropping out of society. Parents were like, you're going to college so you don't have to do what I do. You get a better job. And kids are, like, going to college and dropping out and doing all, considering all these different things. It was, it was a completely different approach to life than anything previous to it, really, in American society. Okay? It really is. And it affected the Jewish community, too. And so Moish Rosen saw this as an opportunity to reach out to Jewish people that were basically open. And Jewish people were open. Young people. I don't know about old people. But young people were very open. And so a number of young Jewish people became believers in Jesus. And uh, Jews for Jesus and ABMJ, the American Board of Missions of the Jews, split. ABMJ uh, basically uh, continued in its approach, but it may, tried to maintain that old approach, uh, which wasn't effective. And Jews for Jesus 
uh, basically filled the vacuum. I mean, the reason they're so big today is, frankly, it was all Moish Rosen. He's just a big guy. If you ever met him, uh, he was a big guy with a big personality, and he was a go-getter. He was a true lion in terms of, of uh, leadership and, and all that goes with it. But uh, Jews for Jesus today is really uh, just one of, of many different organizations that exist. Uh, ABMJ eventually became uh, a group called Chosen People Ministries, uh, there was another group called uh, Friends of Israel. Uh, I talked last week about a group called the Hebrew uh, Christian Hebrew Mission or Hebrew Chicago Hebrew Mission, Chicago Hebrew Mission, which was founded in 1880. Chicago Hebrew Mission today is called Life and Messiah. Uh, whether it's ABMJ, Friends of Israel, he, Chicago Hebrew Mission, it, by the time you get to about today, all all of them were about to go out of business at one point or another over the course of the last 30 years. But they reached points along the way where they renewed themselves. They restructured themselves in different ways. Some of it was Jews for Jesus was really good at attracting young people. They still are. All right? But unfortunately, they have a habit of driving them crazy and burning them out. And what they do is you have good people that, that get involved and they can't take that system. Because they have a system. Every organization does. And these people spin off. And, and they end up in different organizations. And so in many ways, JFJ has, has done a lot of good in training up people that go off and do work someplace else. All right? And so uh, these other organizations have benefited from that. Uh, uh, the only one that has, to my knowledge, has never uh, had anybody on staff who used to be on staff with Jews for Jesus is, is what is today Life of Messiah, which is the, Chicago, which is the old Chicago Hebrew mission. Everybody else has people in major positions of responsibility. He used to be on staff with Jews for Jesus. And in this way, Jews for Jesus parallels what used to be the American Board of Missions to the Jews because several organizations were birthed out of the American Board of Missions to the Jews. And so when you look at the missions from about 1920 to about 1970, it used to be the American Board was this large organization that was very active, doing all kinds of crazy things, producing leaders. And when people had a problem with Leopold Cohen's son, Joseph Hoffman Cohen, yeah, they would just go off and start their own organization. Uh, from 1970 on, uh, Jews for Jesus became this large organization that produced leaders. And when people got tired of working with them and had problems with Moish Rosen or whatever, they would go off and either start their own work or they would go back into the old organizations and bring renewal. <laughs> and that sums up uh, the entire American Messianic Jewish, the entire Jewish mission world from about 1920 to today. All right? Uh, what's interesting also, though, is that a lot of small organizations over the course of the last 30 years have gone out of business. It's been a lot of consolidation and a lot of just people disappearing. Some of that is directly related to change. There's a lot of change, and it's the rise of the congregational movement. Uh, congregations in our form today, like something like ours, didn't exist 50 years ago, didn't exist 40 years ago, all right? A place where you actually had a bunch of Jews meeting like this in a traditional manner didn't exist. And so the, I think a lot of the needs for some of those small little ministry organizations, little mon pas, disappeared, and instead what happened is congregations filled the vacuum. Small little congregations of Jewish people that have become believers in Jesus serve the need of being a, a testimony and a light within these different Jewish communities around the country. 
Now, in point three, the development of Messianic Jewish congregations, let me elaborate. Uh, first of all, um, between 1965 and 1980, uh, I would say that most of the Jewish people that believe in Jesus today became believers, the majority. So some people use the number of 60,000 Jewish believers in Yeshua in America today. 60,000. Uh, someone commented that it seems that even to this day, Jewish people from the boomer generation, so not my, I'm a Gen Xer, born in 66, all right? But people born in the boomer generation are still coming to believe in Jesus. Whether they became believers when they were teenagers or in their 20s or later on, the, the, the number of people, the percentage of people, uh, of Jew, the percentage of Jews who believe in Jesus today from the boomer generation by far is still the majority. By far is still the majority. We're like an anomaly because we have a bunch of young people. But you go to congregations and you go to different situations and you, you meet other Jews that believe in Jesus, you will find that on average more than 50% of the Jews you meet who believe in Jesus are boomers. And someone pointed out it's just God's grace on a particular generation. So those of you who fit into that category, thank God and pray for younger people. <laughs> that God would open their hearts. Okay, um, And uh, what's interesting, though, is, is that from the boomer generation, many of them came from religiously connected uh, homes. They had bar mitzvahs. Uh, they went to synagogue. The majority of them came from that kind of a background. Uh, today, that's, that's not the case. Most of the Jewish people coming to believe in Jesus today are coming from intermarried and secular backgrounds. Um, one of the things that occurred in the development of Messianic congregations that was that for the first time, Christian groups, Christian groups, whether, and I want to say this, whether they were evangelical, think like Willow Creek or Mega Church or Baptist or whatever, uh, Pentecostal groups, even the Catholic Church, came to an understanding that Jewish people that believed in Jesus could continue to live out Jewish identity. Do you realize there's a whole group of Catholics called Hebrew Catholics? Now, I'm not a big fan of Catholicism, okay? But I think it's fascinating that the Catholics have come to understand today that, that Jewish people who believe in Jesus are a remnant, the remnant, Romans chapter 11, and they need to be honored in that sense. They need to be accepted in that sense. They shouldn't be forced to assimilate. They shouldn't be forced, uh, you know, a.k.a. Inquisition, okay, to give up Jewish identity. That is a massive change only occurring since Vatican II, which occurred in the 60s. So th that's like a major change. So, so you've got the Christians on board. So Jewish people are becoming believers in Jesus, often through other Jews, often through Christians, but the bottom line is they're becoming believers in Jesus, and they are saying, I, I don't want to become Catholic or Baptist, I want to be a Jew, starting little fellowships and finding Christians affirming them. That had never occurred in the history of the Jewish people since the first century. But it was a no-brainer, of course you would do that. So from the middle of the, first, middle of the second century, where it has become determined Jews shouldn't do it, all the way up till about 1970, Christians told Jews that the giving up of their identity was important as a marker of true faith in Jesus. Now, generally speaking, Christians are like, of course you should 
live Jewish life. I see no problem with you meeting on Shabbat. You don't have to eat pork to prove that you are a believer in Jesus. That's really new. Congregations developed uh, before 1970, I would say, based on my understanding, maybe a handful of congregations, Messianic congregations. Really, they were Hebrew Christian fellowships. Adada Tikva, as I mentioned, is one of the old ones. goes back to 1935, something like that. And it was a Hebrew Christian fellowship. You went in, it was 50% Jewish, 50% Christian, and it was all Presbyterian. <laughs> okay? It's funny, uh, who's I? Uh, Esther was telling me that she went there. She became a believer there. Uh, she's not here today, but Esther in like 1965 or 66 down in... And, um, uh, and so, and, and Jim, he went to a dot a long time ago. And so, you, you know, you, things have really changed. They, the, these few congregations, one in Chicago, one in L.A., one in Philadelphia that I'm aware of, okay, uh, that existed, actually one also in Baltimore. They were, they, they followed the denomination that was involved with, the, you know, in terms of the mission. They were Hebrew Christian, meaning they, they were Jews that met together but usually in mixed community with other Gentiles, 50-50, which is surprising, all right? And uh, yet their praxis was almost entirely based on the denomination that, that uh, granted them. Uh, it's those, I mentioned last time that there were, to my knowledge, only two or three times where indigenous communities of Jews who became believers in Jesus existed in, in Jewish space. One was Leopold Cohen's work in Williamsburg uh, in the early 1900s, uh, one was uh, the one uh, in Toronto where 100 Yiddish-speaking Jews who believed in Jesus met in Toronto in the early 1900s. And then uh, what um, uh, Al Rungi mentioned in terms of a work that chosen people had in Manhattan in the 1950s where you had, again, another 100 Jews who believed in Jesus meeting in a, in a fellowship. <laughs> but uh, none of these were official congregations uh, and nothing is left of them. They, they probably just assimilated away, and that what replaced them were these Hebrew Christian churches. But today, today, we can have congregations like our own, of, of Jewish people that believe that Yeshua is the Messiah and live out Jewish life as we choose. Now, uh, today there does exist a, a, some division, uh, but some of this is just natural. Uh, there are there's basically uh, three different congregational groupings there's uh, a group of, of about 100 congregations affiliated with the Messianic Jewish Alliance, uh, Alliance of America. Uh, their official title is the International Association of Messianic Jewish or Messianic Congregations and Synagogues, and they're spread all over the country. And there's one of them located in Schaumburg here. They tend to be non-traditional, very mixed. Only about 15 to 20 percent of the people in their congregations are actually born Jewish. Uh, the other is uh, the group we are affiliated with. That's the UMJC, the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations. And I would say, since I'm the president, I would say we have about 50 viable congregations uh, here in the United States. And we are more committed to traditional observance, more committed to, to trying to be actually Jewish uh, in terms of the way we, we live, have our congregations. Yet our congregations, on average, probably only have about 25% uh, Jewish people, which is a problem. It's a real problem. Uh, and then there's a final organization called the Association of Messianic Congregations, which uh, I helped my buddy uh, Steve Schermett start years ago. <laughs> uh, we discussed it, he ran with it, and I chose not to follow. But uh, they still exist and have a very small association with about five or s maybe six or seven congregations. 
but that, that's the breakdown. And they all break down based on their differences of, of how they operate. And that's okay. Uh, everybody thinks we should all be together. Yeah, we can all basically affirm one another. But uh, as we all know, some of us like chocolate. Some of us like vanilla. I like moose tracks. <laughs> What's also been interesting uh, in the last uh, uh, 40 years or so is the cultural development. Today we have music. Uh, I mean, many of you, when you became believers in the, uh, you know, years ago, you, maybe you heard Lamb or the Liberated Welling Wall, which is for Jesus' team. Today we have Navi. You know, we have all kinds of Messianic Jewish mu music that exists. We have literature. We have our own Sidur. We have the complete Jewish Bible. We have, you know, there's a lot of development that has occurred in the Messianic Jewish world. And again, it's because we have freedom. Back in the 1800s, uh, there was a tremendous scholar. A Jewish guy became a believer. He was involved in the translation of the English version of the Sincino Talmud, and I believe also the Zohar, the Sincino Zohar, in the late 1800s. And a brilliant man, Jewish believer in Jesus, had a small little congregation. This is all in England. And he produced a siddur, very, very small siddur. It was more Anglican than it was Jewish, but it still was a little Jewish but he couldn't do what he wanted because it, they wouldn't let him. There wasn't that much freedom in that society back in the late 1800s. Today, we can have sitters. We can have Bibles. We can, we can wear talasim. We can make guys put on yarmulkes when they come into the sanctuary. We can do all this stuff. And our friends who are believers in Jesus, as long as they know we're not adding to the gospel message or trying to replace Yeshua, they don't have a problem with it because they see it all as it is. It's culture. It's the tradition of our people. And it's not against the biblical text. A contraire, it is supported by our biblical text. Also, we have a tremendous amount of theological development. The big issue that we struggle with, probably with the greater Christian community, is the continuity issue. As Jews who believe in Jesus, as Messianic Jews, whether you're with the Alliance, the Union, or with the AMC, we understand there has to be greater sense of continuity between the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. It's one book. There's not 400 silent years, as the church likes to talk about, but that there's this amazing continuity, and that the New Testament, the New Covenant, is simply a continuation. And so therefore, Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He didn't come to terminate. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, didn't encourage Jews to eat bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwiches. But he encouraged them to keep the law. Part of what will come out of my sermon series here, or this message, is that we're going to have to have a discussion about what it means for us as Jews who believe in Yeshua to truly keep Torah. Because I think we really don't take it seriously. And it hurts our testimony. And it affects our ability to communicate with our community. Because continuity and, and Torah observance and commitment is an important Jewish value. I'm not talking here about orthodoxy. But I am talking here about covenant faithfulness when it comes to the Torah. So uh, we do have theological institutions, Messianic uh, Bible Institute, uh, Messianic Jewish Theological Institute. Some major seminaries now have Jewish studies programs. Moody Bible Institute has a Jewish studies program. And so these things exist now and, and a tremendous help for us in terms of educating our young people. So and the results of all this, today approximately 200 Messianic Jewish communal gatherings in the United States. There are 200 approximately. Here in the Chicago area, we have 300,000 Jewish people in Chicago. We have about roughly eight different kinds of Messianic Jewish communal gatherings. 
The sad reality is there's only about 150 Jews in all of those communal gatherings combined. And we have about 50 of them here in our community, okay, which tells you the small percentages. Are there more Jews that believe in Jesus? 300,000 Jews in Chicago. Uh, when you take into account that 10% of the Jewish community in America is Christianized, meaning that they, they really don't have much to do with their Jewish identity. They have a Christmas tree uh, at Christmas time. Uh, that they don't. Uh, that they might even be going to churches with a Gentile spouse, because I've seen that a lot. Jewish guys married to Gentile women, and they're in churches. Even one guy I know going up and taking communion in a Catholic church who is not Catholic, doesn't believe in Catholicism, but he's with his wife, so he'll walk to the front of the church. It's crazy, but he's not a believer in Jesus. 10% of the Jewish community in America Christianized. What percent of the Jewish community are believers in Jesus? Really believers. 1%? Well, that would mean in Chicago that there are 3,000 Jews that believe in Jesus. Is that possible? I suppose it's possible. To me, it's somewhere between 1% and 0.1%. Anywhere from 300 Jews to 3,000 Jews. Probably not 3,000 Jews. Probably more like about 1,500. Maybe there are 1,500 Jewish people in Chicago who genuinely, truly believe in Jesus. Those are not large numbers. Moish Rosen, I uh, talked to him before he died. I always liked talking to Moish. He had great things to say. He was never shy of an opinion. And uh, he thought that the Jews for Jesus uh, demographic study they did, where they stated 60,000 Jewish believers in Jesus in America, which would have been 1% of the American Jewish community, they, he, he thought it was high. He said, I just don't, he says, I speak all the time. And he did. And he said, I just don't run into that many Jewish believers in Jesus. We shouldn't get discouraged about it. But it should make us wonder. It should make us pray. It should make us witness. It should, should drive us to our knees, crying out that God would save more of our people. The last thing I want to note in terms of results, if you remember early 1900s, maybe three to 4,000 Jewish believers, most of those Jewish people coming to faith through Gentile missionaries. Before 1970, so from about 1900 or so to about 1970, approximately 12 to 15,000 Jewish believers. These are just rough statistics, which, you know, sociologists state. And again, many of them coming to faith through Gentile believers, okay? Today, it's the same thing. There are, whatever there are, let's say 30,000 Jews in America who are believers. Uh, again, many of them coming to faith through Gentile believers. Uh, that tells us something important. One, Gentile Christians, real believers, okay? Not Inquisition type people, but real believers. They want to see Jewish people come to believe in Jesus. And we should thank God for that. But also we have to ask ourselves the question, as we are a synagogue of Jews in Skokie who believe in Yeshua, what are we doing to be a better witness here? Are we relying on Jews for Jesus? Are we relying on chosen people? Are we relying on, on uh, the churches to tell Jewish people about Jesus with the hope that they'll find themselves in here? No, we shouldn't. We should be grateful when they do. But what are we doing about it? What are we doing to communicate this important truth? What are we doing to talk to our, about with our family members? Do your family members know you are a believer in Yeshua? Are, you know, 
if there were to be a trial held, could they convict you of your faith? I mean, you know, are you being the testimony you need to be? That's something to chew on, something to think about. Are you using the, the, the works here in this place, whether it's the children's works, the youth works, the adult activity, the Shabbat dinners, the brotherhood, whatever. Are you taking advantage of these things to invite people in? Again, whether they're your family or your friends. And if we believe that Yeshua is for everybody, even your enemies wouldn't be bad. Encouraging people to come, to hear and to consider the truth of who God is and who Yeshua is. Most of our Jewish people today are functioning agnostics. They're functioning agnostics. What are we doing to at least make sure they have a clear understanding of who God is so they can then hear who Yeshua the Messiah is? We have a lot of work to do. And uh, until our Messiah comes back, I don't think that work will be completed, and that's okay. But let's be thinking about this. Next week, we're going, to, we're going to end with a look toward the future and what it looks like. And I can honestly say that the future looks a little discouraging, except for the fact that we know the text says we win because God wins. That ultimately, our people will come to understand who Yeshua is. But yet God expects us to be that testimony for him. So let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word and the challenge of it. And I do pray, God, that we would be more intentional about proclaiming your truth to our people. God, you have entrusted us with this responsibility. Help us, God. Help us burden us, convict us of our lack of intentionality, our, our, our passive uh, uh, actions. Help us to be active, God. Help us to be demonstrating your love to those around us that we might see them come to believe, family, friends, neighbors, associates, strangers, people within the Jewish community who really desperately need to know who Yeshua is, God, that he's our Messiah. Help us to communicate this truth. We pray all this in Yeshua's name.